Hi, this is Michael Soto. And I'm Sam Garman. You're listening to Transform. The podcast where we explore the stories and experiences of folks who are transgender. Beyond the transition. What did your mom say? What is your real name? How about those drugs that you take? And does your voice change? How come you don't feel ashamed? What kind of love do you make? But you don't care about my answer. Your questions ignore me. Let me tell you a story. So we are super thrilled to have our friend Ashton Skinner in the studio today. Uh, and we are going to be talking about experiences and identity and sort of growing into your identity. So Ashton, if you want to introduce yourself, uh, name, pronouns, mm-hmm. and just a little bit about yourself, who you are. Awesome. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. My name is Ashton Skinner. I use the pronouns they and them as of about four or five months ago, which has been really fun. Um, And I did that as a way of coming out as non-binary after about three years of living as a trans man, Mm -hmm. um, after coming out as a lesbian (laughs) and living that way for a couple of years. So um, yeah, that's where I am right now. Awesome. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. All right, so coming out is a common experience, right? And often coming out multiple times for trans folks is a, a common experience. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your coming out experiences? Um, I also think you came out a little bit younger than Sam and I did. So um, could you just share a little bit of that story with us and yeah. uh, what it's been like as you have evolved through coming out? Yeah, okay. Um, one thing that I think was interesting about my coming out was that I have an identical twin sister. And we're, like, about as identical as you can be without being co-joined twins. Like, biologically, we split pretty late in, like, the cellular process or however that looks. And um, that makes it really fascinating because she identifies as a lesbian. And we didn't talk to each other about it growing up just because we were um, raised in, like, a pretty, like, happy childhood home. But a more privileged um, area of Phoenix where most of the families are... I would say center right, um, religiously conservative if they are conservative. And um, it was a neighborhood with really good schools and nice families and it was safe, but also um, it was a place where you didn't really see visible gay people. Mm -hmm. And we went to a church where by the time I was in middle school, we were openly um, discussing as a church whether we're going to affirm in our policies um, having ordained gay people in this denomination we were lutheran oh, okay. um or if we were going to openly affirm in our welcoming statement that new people who come into the church will be valued for their sexual orientation so wow. my first experience with any public conversation about um gayness outside of just my own family was people arguing about whether it was okay with god or not and that was sort of a, oh, i think a deterrent to like i probably knew since I was five or six, Mm -hmm. that I was attracted to women and not men. And that's still true Mm -hmm. to this day. It's just been a really solid core part of me. Um, I don't think that I was as sure of gender. Mm. So since a lot of people conveniently look at a little tomboy and think that girl's going to grow up to be a lesbian, and they look at a boy who's expressing, um, or a male child who's expressing like feminine gender Mm -hmm. and think that's going to be a gay man, they just sort of conflated that. And it, it ended up being that part was true for me. Mm-hmm. I was a tomboy and I was attracted to women. Mm-hmm. And so there was no analysis of gender that happened at all really until mm. I was in college. 
Okay. Um, and what made sense to a lot of people was when I was 18, I said, hey, um, I don't I don't like guys. I don't think I'm ever going to. Um, but I have this girl who I like, and she likes me, and we're going to date. And so, <laughs> hey, everybody. Um, but I told my twin sister first, and she was like, okay, can you give me a few days to wrap my head around this? Because I know everyone's going to ask about me, mm. and I want to come out with you. And that was shocking to me because she was really trying to, um, she expresses more femininely, but I think she was trying to, trying to like guys, I guess is the best way to say it. Really trying to explore if like there Mm -hmm. was any part of her that wasn't gay. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I don't know what, what factors were different in how she saw herself and how I saw myself. But um, I like to kind of say that like I waited a little while to come out and Mm -hmm. she was sort of pulled out with me. And so we made that compromise, but it was easier to do it together. Uh Um, Yeah. Which was really cool. And then. We both um, were very embraced by our family, which is great. We had uh, our uncle came out as gay when I was, I don't think that I was alive yet, but he um, started bringing partners home and started mm. really like having that be an open part of our family when I was really young. Oh, wow. Um, great. And I went to his wedding when I was in middle school. Mm. So to think about all that and to still know that I had so many more years before coming out mm-hmm. really kind of, I think, speaks to looking back at it. Um, the implicit shame that comes with yeah. growing up as a, a gay person yeah. um, when you still didn't see it a lot in TV or in media. Yeah. Um, and I'm sort of maybe in that last generation of people who didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ellen DeGeneres was like on a talk show by the time that I was in high school, but she had just had her you know big coming out a couple of years before or mm-hmm. all that. And so um, it just wasn't like it is now, you know, mm-hmm. where you can find... Um, not only stereotypes, but all of the real stories of people who are more three-dimensional, yeah. um, mm-hmm. who you can see yeah. yourself in. So yeah. especially for trans people, I just had nothing beyond um, kind of tropes of drag queens, and mm-hmm. that was it. So it took a lot longer to yeah. figure out what that really meant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so then you said in in college, you said, I like girls. And I'm not uh, going to like boys. It was senior in high school. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right before I went to college because okay. I wanted to make sure if anything was like really uncomfortable, I had an escape route. <laughs> I was literally leaving the state <laughs> to go to college in Washington. And that was not a great escape route. Um, I went to a Christian college. Oh, like a small well, Christian that's a college. Choice. Wow. And it wasn't because like I wanted to go to a Christian school or a faith-based education at all. Yeah. I actually was really worried about it, but I wanted a small school. And when... Um, when you get a scholarship and when you can afford a private school and the other option is ASU, mm-hmm. it felt like a very large contrast. So I went to the school uh, with about 2,600 undergrad students. Whoa. And it was wow. so a really great educational experience. Um, and on paper, it's a more progressive Christian university than most of the other mm-hmm. kind of universities in its cohort who have mm-hmm. mandatory chapel and Bible study courses and all this stuff. We didn't have any wow. of that. Um, what we did have was... Like, you had to be a person who proclaims Christian faith to teach there Mm. or to be on staff. Mm. Um, But I found that most of the staff and many, many of the professors were very progressive Mm. um, and were very LGBT-affirming, interested in racial justice on campus, lots of really cool stuff. And then a lot of the students were um, students who grew up in that part of the country and... Had, some of them had been homeschooled all through high school. Some of them had gone to religious private high schools. So the student body was very different mm-hmm. from kind of what you saw as advertised for the university and kind of what the ideology was in theory. Mm-hmm. It looked a lot different on campus in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I had a lot of really interesting conversations with people who I became friends with my first and second year there. 
um, who just really fundamentally believed that gay people go to hell. And they Oof, they wow. kind of thought it was part of their uh, like faith and their evangelical mission to try to convince me other otherwise. Um, yeah. And that's that's the kind of thing that was really important for the work I do now mm-hmm. because I wouldn't have gotten into advocacy if I hadn't had um, relationships with people who started there and really struggled once they got to know and love people who were gay yeah. and changed their minds. Yeah. And mm-hmm. still still held on to their faith, but also held on to the nuance that um, what they were taught wasn't reflective of who they knew people to be. Yeah. Which was really cool because I think it's kind of a, an important tactic to use here mm-hmm. in Arizona. For Definitely. sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we talked, Michael and I talked in the coming out episode, we both were raised in faith traditions mm-hmm. um, that have a similar setup, right? And so when I came out originally, people really struggled. Mm-hmm. And it is to, uh, there are many, there are, in fact, there are many friends who listen to this podcast who have been friends with me for a very long mm-hmm. time and have hung in through some really hard conversations that were like, what you're telling me and who I know you to be is fundamentally opposed to everything I think that I believe, but also I know you and I love you. And so that's mm. like, there's definitely like, I've, I've had this experience mm. where yeah. folks have to do the work and it's really cool to see. And there's some room for empathy there where mm-hmm. I think um, people who come out who were, who grew up in faith traditions kind of have to grapple yeah. um, with do I leave my community? Do I mm-hmm, leave what mm-hmm. I have been raised in, what I know to be true, mm-hmm. um, for who I know I am and mm-hmm. the life that I know I could have if I don't have to be hanging around all this like shame and fear and judgment? Right. And then there are these other people who really love a person and say, I don't understand why um, I was taught to believe this and I was taught that this is right and I was taught that this is how you lead a good and righteous life mm-hmm. and I'm never going to change this person I care about. And it was almost like... Um, the people I knew who really never changed their view about about homosexuality being wrong biblically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they almost had to they had to sacrifice this relationship because the cognitive dissonance was too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they said I can't have a friend who I really love who's gay um, if it means that I'm just going to keep questioning my faith because faith came first. Yeah. And for mm-hmm. me, it was the exact opposite. It was like I'm not going to sacrifice my happiness and my mm-hmm. my kind of freedom of opportunity. Right. Um, for this this faith thing that doesn't really fit me um, yeah. and was really important to me as a as a builder of community and i don't think i've ever found a place where you can find community so well as in a church mm-hmm. which True. i'm sure resonates with both of you yeah um yeah. but for me leaving that home was way more important than kind of sacrificing um my own mental health and my own um, emotional stability because mm-hmm. the internal shame is just something that that weighs on you a little more all, all the time that you're staying with that. Yeah. Trying to grapple with that. Yeah. yeah. So that's my opinion. Yeah. Well, and I think it's yeah. a, I think it's also um, an exercise in finding a way for both things to be true. Right. And so if you're in a faith tradition that can't reconcile that and that says, no, there's only one truth. Like it's not a both and it's an only this, um, that doesn't work for a lot of LGBTQ folks, right? Like we have to find faith communities where we can be both people of faith and, trans and queer and you know whatever our identities are um, because both of those things are possible <laughs> and yeah, exactly. uh, you know we can we can live lives that are fully um realized and uh, in our gender in our sexual orientation and in our faith um mm-hmm. but it's finding a community that makes that possible mm-hmm. um, that i think is really key yeah um, and it's 
it's funny to hear you say that because you know I go to a church now that has been really accepting and progressive. In fact, the first place that I ever came out as trans publicly was mm. at the pulpit of my church. Whoa, that's, cool. like, that's awesome! They invited me to share my story with wow. the community as a part of the church service, and wow. then the pastor immediately followed me and gave a whole sermon about inclusivity and what our message of affirmation really means and what does it look like to really ally with a community we didn't know we had as a part of us Mm. and it was you know and of course i literally wept through the entire thing (laughs) just just tears streaming down my face and i like there's obviously no video record of it thank god Um, but i just can only imagine how much of a mess i looked like but it's really healing to be a part of a faith community where that is yeah a possibility. Right. Like, and really traumatic to be a part of one that isn't. I, I think of sort of a yeah. contrast of the the YouTube video of the little Mormon girl, right? I, I grew up LDS. Mm-hmm. Um, so that video really resonates with me where she is bearing her testimony and coming out to her congregation as a lesbian at like eight or something. Uh, yeah. And they actually, the, the priesthood holders at the the men, right, that are sort of leading the service, cut her microphone, um, you know, a few moments after she's come out. And she, her whole testimony is that God loves her, just like God loves anyone else, um, and that she can be both, you know, a person of faith, and she can believe in God, and she can be who she is. Um, and I can't think of a more beautiful message to send to anyone, right? Like, yeah. we're all lots of things mm-hmm. that sometimes are contradictory in different uh, parts of faith, you know, but that's part of having faith is, you know, believing that we can reconcile these things and we can be whoever we are, the people that we need to be um, and yeah. do good in the world, right? You were talking about being in college, being in this small Christian school. Um, you had come out as a lesbian. Uh, mm-hmm. When did you come out gender in, in regard to gender the first time? Um, and yeah. then how did that evolve the second time? Um, so I think, so I had about, I had one experience with having like a trans friend who I knew well enough to understand what it meant to transition from female to male. Okay. Um, and that happened when I, like just recently after I had come out as a lesbian. Mm. And so I think I was just sort of settling into dating because obviously we all know now like there are these two very distinct vectors and one has to do with how you relate to other people romantically mm-hmm. another one is just you and i was so concerned with like how the heck do i date like I've done this all. Um, what am i doing like i'm so behind the curve and going to a new place where i knew new people and there were more queer women and actually got to date i think that was just absolutely taking up my sort of growth energy um but it was sort of on my radar And I think the reason why I didn't look at that friend who had transitioned from uh, female to male and think, oh my gosh, that's what's going on, is because I I think I tried to fit into this narrative of of trans men, Mm. but it never actually was who I am. Mm. And so it kind of, it didn't fit until I was trying to make it fit, Mm -hmm. and then it still didn't fit, and (laughs) I had to find that out the harder way uh, in the long run. But I had a really great... um, first two years in college where I was able to date and I was able to be openly uh, lesbian as like a resident assistant in one of the dorms. Um, Things that I think were more visible than a lot of the students may have expected on this campus. Mm -hmm. And I ended up kind of, like I joke about it now, I ended up being the kind of person who everybody came out to when they didn't know who to tell. (laughs) And I'm sure like both of you have had spaces in your life where this happens, but it's great. (laughs) And there was sort of like this code at my school where um, someone who I really didn't know at all would come up to me and 
say like, oh, I've seen you around. Like you, you seem really cool. And I would love to like get to know about, and they'd make some excuse about the art program maybe, or I want to know about choir or I want to know about what it's like being an RA. Any of the things that I did, yeah. that was just like an arbitrary excuse to get like go on a little coffee date. Yeah. And then we would mm-hmm. sit and have coffee and have this like painful small talk for about an hour. And then every single time in the last like five minutes, they'd get all sweaty and like squirmy and they'd be like, okay, I actually wanted to talk to you because I just, I, and they'd start like stammering and by the end they'd be like, uh, I'm gay. And I, I didn't know who to talk to. And like, I know you're gay and I thought maybe I should talk to you. And so this happened like, I don't know, probably happened like up to 12 times by the time I graduated, which is pretty funny. But the cool thing was after a while I had this little collection of people who had only told me and who I thought would really like to meet each other yes um, so we had a gsa but it was sort of like the I, I guess this is how it was when i was in high school too it was sort of the endless problem of like not having anywhere to go between you just came out and you're wearing a rainbow backpack every day mm. to school mm-hmm. and you have the buttons and you have the like crazy hair there was just like no place where people felt safe to grow into expression and if that wasn't their authentic expression like they maybe oh. never felt safe in the gsa yeah. so we mm. had these awesome people who were doing great stuff in the community who are very visible yeah. um, and very confident, and they didn't really have a space for anybody who was struggling with kind of questions of faith mm. or coming out, internal um, sort of like implicit shame and those mm-hmm, kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So I just collected about, I think, 10 or 11 people mm-hmm. the first time, and we got um, into my sister's uh, dorm room when like, we locked the door. <laughs> I did a Facebook message. Everybody came through. Uh, we spent about two hours just like downloading kind of uh, people walked into the room knowing they'd be in a room full of other gay people. Yeah. And that was it. And so that was really cool. Um, we had a like little support group from that for two years. Nice. And we ended up getting some faculty and some staff from our university and some students from a university neighboring ours, which mm. was a Jesuit college. Oh, wow. Um, so by the end, we had like 25 people, which <laughs> was just really cool. Like. It was this little uh, haven that people could talk through things, and a bunch of couples ended up sprouting out from that, of course, which was really cool. Of course. Um, You put 25 gay people in a room. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Somehow. And then by the time I was... um, So I found community at this this college by hanging out with all of the LGBT students once I knew who they were, Mm -hmm. um, hanging out with students of color who felt marginalized on campus for so many reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of them were there for all kinds of reasons, but were assumed to be there for sports or this one diversity scholarship. Yeah. And so oh. they had just so many microaggressions. Um, mm-hmm. And then we had a lot of international students. We had a really thriving exchange program mm-hmm. um, and very affordable study abroad for the students who were from the U.S. Mm-hmm. So we got a lot of students who, well-meaning, um, like international students would be filling out this form and they'd think, oh, Seattle's really cool. Let's check Washington as a preference. And they'd get into Spokane in this tiny school. Oh. And just like their whole American dream vision of college was completely crushed. They were like on a dry campus. Oh, no. There was like oh, a chapel. Oh. They were confused as to why the student body was how it was. It wasn't like the movies. Um, so I actually had an on-campus job for two years uh, doing the, the orientation for new international students. Yeah. And I ended up, that was my friend group for uh, the majority of the time I was in college was nice. like, Students from out of the country who cared about politics, mm. who wanted to watch the news during the like Obama Romney debates. Mm-hmm. I was shocked at how apolitical this campus was. Oh wow! Um, and so, yeah. yeah, I really just found I found my home with other people. Um, but part of that, the reason I'm kind of making this uh, foray is that one of the international students I met um, mm. was from Guatemala, and the day that she came to campus, she um, was 
appearing as like this very very shy young man mm-hmm. with long hair um and she hadn't told anybody she was trans like mm-hmm. nobody i think one one or two friends at home um but she basically came to the u.s to study she went to a school in la for a while and found that it was too big and she mm-hmm. kind of felt lost there and transferred to our little school oh, wow. and so the first day she was on campus i met her because it was my job to do orientation um <laughs> and I, we just became friends but a few weeks later she kind of just told me, hey, I want to be able to be myself here. And I don't know how to do it. I don't see any trans students on campus. Uh, and I said, I don't see any trans students on campus either. Like, <laughs> tell me more about this experience. I just want to hear what you're going through. And she started, like, she used words like dysphoria. Um, uh, she started talking about things that I'd never heard anybody talk about, uh-huh. like I mentioned earlier, in actual real terms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from a stereotype or a TV character. So... It was interesting how seeing myself in a trans woman's narrative helped me to realize like what was going on with me more mm-hmm. than in a trans man. Mm-hmm. Just because mm-hmm. the the things that were in common mm-hmm. um, were the really the things that were matching for me. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't me looking at a trans man and saying, I'm not trans because I don't fit this, this, and this. Sure. It was more like, oh, we both have dysphoria. We both have mm-hmm. um, these things we desire. And that was... I guess a way better understanding of the the common trans experience, regardless mm. of how you're transitioning, yeah. um, that I really did see myself in. Nice. So by the time I graduated, there were four openly trans students. Wow. One had come day one. He, he's from Arizona too, which is really cool. <laughs> uh, awesome. He'd come from day one and said, like, here are my pronouns. This is my birth certificate. It doesn't match what my name is. You're going to change your records. You're going to put me in a male's dorm. And they were like, uh, we don't know what else. Sure. Like, we don't know. Well, we don't know. I, I guess. Yeah. Yes, sir. So I just, like, did everything this kid wanted. And he wow. ended up blazing this really cool trail of just demanding, like, the same treatment as a freshman. Nice. So they updated their housing forms, like, when he showed up. They uh, made a new policy. They just were, like, very progressive without realizing it, almost. Yeah, yeah. Because he just came in wanting these things. Wow. Um, so I, That's awesome. it's weird That's to say amazing. I ended up mentoring him cause I don't really think I did. Like he taught me more about what it meant to be trans, Sure. but I ended up hanging out with him a lot. I should nice. say, um, hanging out with this woman. And then when I was a RA, um, the other trans student on campus was in my all female hall. Mm. And How at the you? time she like asked me for her first, like butch haircut and all these things. So like I cut <laughs> her hair really short. And then when I came out as trans, <laughs> she like very quickly came up to me and was like, Hey, <laughs> I don't want to be copying you. I want you to know right now, like, I'm not trying to just be you, yeah. but I'm trans too. <laughs> That's awesome. So that was really cool. And he's like still uh, really close to me and a lot of my friends. Nice. And it's just kind of fun to see that um, we have a really special relationship of being like the the trans students who who were maybe the first openly mm. trans students in the school's like 250 year history. Wow. And we all got to do that together. That's cool. Um, and they just like, they're, they're doing a um, speaking event this fall about trans identity in the church and all this stuff. So they're just really tackling it in a way that's impressive. Wow. Um, but it's because they couldn't ignore students being open and demanding the same experience. Yeah. So I learned a lot about organizing mm. at that school. Um, and I applied a lot of that to kind of anti-bias training and, racial justice issues and all the kinds of things that, like I said, on a, on a campus where you're in a bubble and it's easy to be apolitical, Uh um, you notice that being apolitical means being privileged. And so all the students who weren't, or all the students for whatever reason who were marginalized came together and learned about each other's marginalization, learned about how those intersect. Um, and it gave us a really critical view of a lot of these issues that I think we wouldn't have had if we were just sort of working in our own silos. So that was a really good experience. Um, that overall made me thankful to go to this school. Yeah. Even though it was really, really hard at times. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
That's incredible. That's just uh, speaking to the power of organizing, right? Just this small Christian college, you know, able to like actually respond to the needs of trans students where Mm -hmm. you see massive universities that are uh, in name more progressive potentially or supposed to be right more progressive Mm -hmm. like asu um that have struggled for decades yeah they make all these bureaucratic excuses Uh it's too hard Mm -hmm. yep (laughs) just constantly right Mm -hmm. instead of just Uh, adapting the bureaucracy yeah it's amazing (laughs) yeah well and there's the part of the problem with a big institution you know is that the person who talks to the student doesn't actually have any connection with the person who makes the decision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there's so many layers between that what's happening on the ground for students never actually gets discussed with the person who could make the decision. And so you end up with these mm-hmm. convoluted systems. It's mm-hmm. like, why is it that hard? Mm-hmm. Like why? But <laughs> I end and you up- keep, you keep getting <laughs> bounced to the same places. Yeah. Yeah. Like the yeah. registrar will send you to student services who sends you to the registrar yeah. who sends you to student services. Yeah. And you're like, how do I get out of this loop? Right. <laughs> I keep meeting a different representative every time. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it was really cool to see that, um, a few times when I was at that university, I actually got to sit down with the president of the university cause it was small yeah. Yeah. and I was in student government by my senior year and just said, Hey, this is what's going on. Um, these are the challenges that we're facing. This is why you have students protesting. This is yeah. why you have students demanding things. Um, and this is what it would look like for our interests to be met. Yeah. Now we want to hear why you can't. Mm-hmm. And he talked about funding. He talked about how his biggest interest group should be students, but he has to run a business. Mm-hmm. Um, he had studied economics. Mm-hmm. And so he was really great about um, being really transparent and saying, we don't have a school if we don't keep these people happy. Mm-hmm. But also... We don't have a school if students don't want to come here anymore. And there's sort of this balance that I saw. He was stuck in a really political position, Mm. um, but he really did handle it very graciously and made some really cool um, statements and sort of forward momentum in a way that probably made a lot of people feel less than satisfied, Mm. but made everybody feel a little satisfied. And I think that's like something we don't give enough credit for. It's really, Mm -hmm. it's fantastic that he could do that. Um, And I... I hope. I mean, I, I talk to some people there who say that it is improving. I hope that that campus kind of is learning from that. Yeah. Um, and that you can always find a different funding stream. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That will support, if you're not making excuses, that will support what you really care about. Yeah. yeah. Especially over time, right? Mm-hmm, you can mm-hmm. grow into those things. Yeah. yeah. We find that pretty much every conversation that we end up having, <laughs> there's, there's some conversation about privilege in yes. the way that, you know, the way that privilege impacts our journeys and our stories and, our access to transition and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. So um, like talk a little bit about your experience with privilege and mm-hmm. sort of, you know, it sounds like some of your ethos is around accompl- being an accomplice or an ally to folks who have less privilege. So like sort of mm-hmm. how do you balance those things? What's your, yeah, I you think know? in general, I only see myself as a person of privilege. There's really no mm-hmm. way that I can tip the scales and see myself against many, many, many people. Um, I'm sure there are people who are more privileged than me. Sure. And at the same time, within my life experiences, I like am in the top, I don't know, 90th percentile of having it easy (laughs) and being supported and these kinds of things that um, I'm really aware of. And I think I didn't really know that I don't always sense the power that comes with it because I was raised uh, as a female Hmm. and I was raised in a way that I think I still have my own internal dialogue that I shouldn't assume power or that I don't have power to assume, even though I probably do. Um, I noticed, for instance, in 
grad schools versus grad classes, sorry, versus mm-hmm. undergrad classes, mm-hmm. um, how I would have more attention put on me right. as a person who had a deep voice and appeared male. Mm-hmm. Um, so those kinds of things, but I still don't assert power. I don't, I don't really use it. I don't like to use it. Um, mm-hmm. Masculine energy is something that's really unattractive for me to mm-hmm. take on personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I try really hard to hang on to the things that I was raised with. And it's interesting for me to be someone who uh, my so much of my identity and my work is around trans experience, which by definition is me not uh, identifying as female. Mm-hmm. But there's this sort of like female energy and this femininity and womanhood that um, aligns so much with all the things that I value mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I hold those virtues to be more dear to me Mm -hmm. than anything masculine because i see masculinity as um so hard to to break apart from privilege and power Mm -hmm. and all those things that i think are um pretty ugly and so i think when i when i see men doing something differently it's almost because they're embracing femininity and the virtues that we teach girls Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so all that said i think i had to kind of realize the ways that i could use my privilege Mm -hmm. and it had to be more of like a a mama bear or like a mama lion, like protecting cubs or protecting mm-hmm. some uh, virtue or making things more just. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about taking up space or asserting power. Um, it wasn't about even having this big energy. It was really about uh, being uncompromising and trying to fight for what you think is right because someone else doesn't have the energy or the access or the time um, to do so for themselves. And because maybe they could say the exact same thing as you and you'll be listened to. Uh, over them. Mm-hmm. And so I think one example of recently where that has come up was I had a friend in PhD classes who was sort of being pushed out of a department at ASU. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to put anyone on blast, so I'll try to keep this very um, disidentified from any one department. Yeah. Essentially, she was getting in one of those feedback loops of bouncing from department to department. Um, one professor had a bias against her mm-hmm. and said that her body language was affecting class. And she's an African American woman who was raised in sorry she's not an african-american woman this is hilarious because people assume she was Uh um she was born like she has a caribbean ancestry and Uh was born and raised in england okay and so she identifies as black um british and caribbean okay and so even just the fact that i said she's african-american that's part of what she kind of comes up against yeah is these stereotypes of a um, cultural appearance of black women that is really unfamiliar to her Uh and it's not who she is um so I had classes with her and found her to be like, she talks no more passionately with no more body language than I do or than you do right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when I heard that she was being pushed out of this class because of body language, um, I just saw in my head that there was this bias against someone based on race and based on gender. Mm -hmm. Um, And she had to take this one class with this one professor Mm -hmm. to graduate on time. And in order to graduate on time, um, she had enough funding left that she was on track. Yeah. And she could stay in the U.S. If she had to take another class for another semester, she wouldn't have funding mm-hmm. and basically wouldn't be able to finish her Ph.D. Wow. Because she'd have to go back to England because there wasn't enough funding to keep her and nobody pays Ph.D. students. Right. Yeah. So she was in this loop and she found that she would talk to all these people. And basically she decided that bringing me into a meeting might change the outcome and was absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And it was shocking to see how um, I would go into meetings with her with people who are teaching justice-centered coursework. Uh And they would look at me the entire time. Uh And so I literally just would have to look at her to try to get them to look at her. And it was like she wasn't there. Uh, And thinking about how people who spend their whole lives theorizing justice and theorizing equity and theorizing the kind of work that they should be so aware of and try to be uh, cognizant of these implicit biases, and they just were acting upon them instead, Uh um, was really fascinating. It's Uh like almost this thing that we don't even see 
until I think trans people have a unique ability to do this until you see yourself in these different contexts and think, what's the variable? Uh-huh. And for me, the variable has been seeing myself as a white man in other people's eyes uh-huh. versus seeing myself as a gay woman, uh-huh. a gay white lesbian woman. Uh-huh. And even within a few years, seeing that change um, was just, I think, the biggest eye-opener of how privilege works for me. Yeah. And it shouldn't be that you have to live through it to see that, but it really did help me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really common experience for a lot of us is seeing... Uh, how privilege operationalizes, right? When you when you suddenly can attain male privilege, uh, I don't think any of us. Well, I won't say any of us. Many of the people that we've talked to don't see the problems with male privilege, right? And see it as a negative force in the world in a lot of ways, um, and spend a lot of time grappling with that, right? Um, which it sounds like you've spent time with, you know, sort of grappling like, how do you navigate? in a world where people put that on you, right? So mm-hmm. you are you have that privilege whether you want it or not. Um, and another part of kind of being an ally is like understanding how people see you. So yeah. now I'm the person who, even though in my body and in mm-hmm. my knowledge and the life that I've lived, I'm afraid of a guy walking behind me in the street. Sure. I still have to remember when I'm the guy walking behind somebody in the yeah. street and yep. cross the street. Exactly. And have to remember that I don't have to be afraid in certain scenarios or kind of gauging the power differential yeah. to see if my discomfort will... will read as somebody else as their unsafety. Yeah. If I'm looking at someone too much because I'm afraid of them, they might be afraid of me and they feel less safe. Yeah. Um, so kind of negotiating that stuff is yeah. really odd. Yeah. But I think it's important to do. It's really important. I mean, I think the ultimate act of privilege is letting ourselves opt out of privilege, right? Because perhaps our childhoods or experience didn't give us that experience from the get go. Um, but we have it now, right? Mm-hmm. Whether we want it or not. <laughs> and yeah. so really being aware of how that works has been, Similarly for me, um, just an everyday challenge, you know, and something that I have to work on every single day, being aware of how my presence can change a room, you know, like for the first time in my life, I have friends who, uh, didn't know me at all Mm. before I 100% passed. Right. And like, have only known me for years as this person. And so when I talk about my childhood, they think of me as a little boy. And so there are often these moments where they're like, Oh, your mom was so progressive to get you a Barbie house. And I was like, just give it a minute. And then they're like, Oh wait. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, okay. Um, But you know, that, that means this, what you're talking about. Like when I'm walking behind someone, they don't see, the years of my childhood, right? Mm-hmm, they just mm-hmm. see this. Um, and that can be a scary thing, especially in a world that's so hostile to women. Yeah. Uh, as Sam and I were talking about before you got here, uh, we are just appalled at the <laughs> what's happening in this country um, mm-hmm. and the persistence of male privilege and patriarchy um, that we're seeing in the, you know, the Kavanaugh stuff and not believing Dr. Ford or any of the other women who've come forward. So I like to hope people cling the most when they know that it's, they're about to lose it. Yeah. And maybe that's what's happening, but I think it's going to be, uh, it's the whole darkest before the dawn concept, but I think it's going to be a little while. So agreed. There was a scary, some sort of elected official that came out today and saying, uh, if if Kavanaugh is rejected from the Supreme Court, then no man will will pass the test for any sort of public office. And you know, that I just giggled. And, yeah, yes. <laughs> and he was he was like, no man will be able to be on the Supreme Court. And I was like, 
Cool. That Maybe that's right. what needs to happen. That sounds <laughs> yeah. right. Sounds that good. Great. Where do Let's, I vote for that? Right. Yeah. Can we do that for a little while, actually, <laughs> until men are better? <laughs> like, yeah. let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> you lost your privileges. Yeah. Until. <laughs> until you're better humans. Learn how listen, to be decent humans. Listen, man people. Get it together. <laughs> man people. Man yeah. People. Oh. <laughs> so at some point, so I happen, I just happen to know this because I've lived in Phoenix for a very long time. Like, so at at some point, you came back from Spokane, mm-hmm. from university, and ended up on the front page of the paper with your dad, <laughs> <laughs> with this story about being uh, trans, which is, which was my entrance, but like my, people were like, have you seen this? <laughs> like this, is, so that was like my first rec- like recognition like, that, who's that, kid? that you existed. Uh-huh. I was like, who is this kid? What is going on? Yeah. So how, how did that happen? Um, my, my mom and dad go to this cool progressive church, um, called city square church it's downtown yeah it's a a great it's like as close as i can feel to going into a church and feeling like some sort of community that i feel comfortable with um and so i came back from college and had a little bit of time before i started grad school and i was uh living with my parents over a summer before i started grad school and i had um you know i just wanted to hang out with them and kind of reconnect Mm -hmm. and i'd go to church with them and stuff um so their their church community knew us well, and Alexis Roan goes there, and she's one of the local people who runs the Arizona Storytellers um, kind of projects, uh-huh. and she does a lot of the organizing and coaching for the storytellers. Nice. So there was a storytelling event on family, and this was after I'd been working at one community for quite a while. Um, so she just asked us if we would do it, knowing that my dad, uh, who facilitates corporate meetings and is in front of people for a living and is really a great speaker, um, would do it in a heartbeat. And I think it's also because she'd seen his um, video. They got honored for a One Community mm-hmm. um, award ceremony kind of thing. And so they had this really touching story talking about their uh, affirmation of me and my gay sister. Mm-hmm. And so she saw that and was like, you already have done this work of, of hashing out the story. Would mm-hmm. you tell it in a storyteller's project? Nice. Um, and would Ashton do it with you? So that was sort of our... And it was funny because at that point I knew I wanted to come out as non-binary, but the work of doing this, building a story... And if you've ever done a storytelling event, it's uh-huh. a lot of work. Uh-huh. But if you do it with another person, it's like you have to script all of it and know uh-huh. when I'm done with a certain phrase, this is what he picks up. And uh-huh. when he's done, this is what I do. So we had to practice it, like basically just memorize this thing. Wow. Um, so I didn't feel like that was the time to come out and really dig through the nuance of like, well, if I want to tell my story truthfully, mm. we should probably have a conversation first, Dad, about me coming out again. <laughs> like you've just gotten the hang of like he and him pronouns and you're really affirming. And like I just – I kind of was – I felt stuck. So I just said, let's do this. Yeah. Um, and then I think over time I got I got tired of being uh, represented in, in media locally as a trans man. Mm. And that was part of coming out. But really that was why we did the storytelling thing was that um, – He'd already done that work. His story was already public. Uh, I already had a job title that had transgender in it. Uh-huh. And so I think she kind of assumed that we would both be okay with kind of having that public platform. And then um, we were lucky, lucky enough that a couple of the people who help with Arizona Storytellers Project are reporters for their public. And they wanted a Father's Day mm-hmm. um, kind of story. So it just Aww. they literally took the text from the story we wrote and presented and they just typed it up. Nice. So it's like a done deal for them. Super easy. Super easy for us. Yeah, um, yeah it was... I don't think we realized, I don't know, I don't really think I took time to appreciate that that would have been a new or exciting story. <laughs> you know, I was like, everybody's talking about this because I'm this young person who just got out of a campus where everybody was talking yeah, about it. Yeah. Um, and then we just got a lot of good support and mm. I think realized that a lot of people read the Arizona Republic who don't live in 
Phoenix area and who thought, wow, this is really progressive news telling and it's really um, exciting to tackle this kind of story and have it be affirming because I think so much of the coverage of trans people in Arizona is still um, either when somebody has committed a crime and they find out they're trans and try to spin it or if something bad has happened um, and a trans person has been victimized and then we're in the news for being hurt or killed. So I think that was kind of what made it so powerful was that it was just a story about love. That's awesome. That is awesome. Did you guys get any like negative feedback from that? No, nothing. I like if we did, it wasn't directly. I never read comments. I was mm. taught that by is some a wise solid, people, solid policy. Don't read the comments. <laughs> yeah. uh, years ago, so I didn't read. You know, I didn't look no. for any Facebook rants or anything. I, they, we see enough hate just yeah. doing advocacy work that I didn't. I think it's easy enough to run across it. Yeah. Um, we did get a lot of great personal emails and saying thank you and people who'd known me when I was a little girl mm-hmm. and said, wow, this is really cool. I'm so glad that you're, you know, happy and thriving and that you're back home and all this stuff. That's awesome. So yeah, I probably people said all kinds of stuff, but luckily <laughs> I, I didn't seek it out. Smart. Yeah. Good life choice. It does seem like a, it seems like a solid life choice to be like, man, we got so much fantastic support. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's awesome. great. This is, yeah. this is perfect. <laughs> I know. That's not a general policy. I do. I think part of my job as someone who works for non-discrimination work here yeah. um, is to kind of be in the mindset and, and understand the ideology, take on the um, logic of your opposition, which yeah. is in this case, uh, people who for reasons of conservative Christianity really hate you mm. or are using um, hate to try to bar you from getting any more right or right. privilege into um, public life. Yeah. So I think that's something that I do have to spend a lot of time thinking in. And I'm sure you both do too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I don't seek it out when it's personally directed at me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As Smart. I'm sure it is. Like if you're a visible trans person in Arizona, it's going to be. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. You just focus on knowing it's there and not forgetting about it and not, um, minimizing it but also focusing on the good stuff yeah when you can yeah and not steeping yourself in the hate like mm-hmm. we know it's there we, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and i think it'll be cool when in a few generations like the experience of being trans is not an experience of struggling with mental health mm-hmm. but i am of a generation where that's not true yet you yeah. know nope. so i think we all um kind of negotiate that and i know you both yeah. understand that too yeah for absolutely sure. yeah uh you've talked a little bit about your work um i was wondering if you could just uh if there's anything we we've been talking a lot about the election, uh, we've been talking a lot about really timely things that are happening. And I know you're doing advocacy work in the trans and the LGBTQ community. So is there anything you want to share with folks or uh, hope uh, any information that you want to get out there um, that could help people be better advocates or be more yeah. participatory in this process? Um, I don't know when this will be posted, but so I'm assuming before the election, Yes, yeah, so I'm assuming you'll have a little bit of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think now is the time to feel I, we all spent so much time and I know that it's, it's still productive to mental health to be able to take time for yourself to watch TV or to be at home with your family, mm-hmm. um, to listen to podcasts, but really we waste a lot of time when what's more important right now is to be out there volunteering and out yep. there, uh, educating people or even just finding if you, if you post a lot, if you spend a lot of time on Facebook, don't feel guilty about it, but find things to post mm-hmm. that will change how people think. Or change how people act between now and November 6th. Definitely. It's like you can all do a little bit um, that I think in from what I know about politics here, it's not even about getting the wins in November right. that we want to see. It's about yeah. making progress so that maybe in a few years um, we have more sustainable yeah. outcomes. Absolutely. And it's not – I've never been one to think that um, – I, I honestly struggle with some of the 
nationwide strategy of uh-huh. LGBT uh, non-discrimination uh-huh. because I think a lot of what our movement building is concerned about is um, gaining seats for progressive candidates and winning elections and winning ballot campaigns, uh-huh. which is very important. And I think more important is changing, kind of educationally changing hearts and minds of people who, like obviously there are lots of people who will never change their mind and will always hate and will always um, be uncomfortable with LGBTQ uh, rights and protections. There are also a lot of people who are undecided because they haven't really had a fair chance to um, meet anybody or hear any stories or weigh the options. So I think what's really important in states like Arizona is uh, sharing stories um, finding people who are the right spokespeople to get the message across that there are commonalities between people who don't understand LGBT folks and LGBT folks. Yeah. Um, and that there are lots of LGBT people who are people of faith, like right. you mentioned earlier. Uh-huh. There are lots of LGBT people who are uh, moderate or center-right in Arizona uh-huh. um, who I think their their stories are sort of lumped into whatever stereotypes people have. Yeah. And the stories are often lumped into um, the fear that is very aggressively and skillfully deployed by our opponents here. Uh And in Arizona, we're one state where we have uh, a lot of funding and people power and very strong organizing to back a movement toward hate, Uh uh, blocking LGBT rights, because we have um, a couple of international advocacy groups that are very, very strong based here. And so the sort of support they get is just uh, unwavering. And I really do think that... um, they are stronger organizers in a lot of ways. They're better at getting funding because they're working within spaces of privilege mm-hmm. and people can get away with um, doing things the dirty way mm-hmm. where we're doing things the way that we would hope in a utopic society would get us where we need to go. Mm-hmm. But we just get squished by people who don't have the same ethical code and have a lot more power and money. Yeah. Um, so I think staking everything on an election can be uh, really scary. Yeah, I am more... I, I support and I'm excited about getting candidates into office now. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's really, really important to change how people think and kind of change narratives yeah. uh, because that's how you change votes forever and yeah. not mm-hmm. a vote for one election when you saw an ad campaign on the right day and thought, well, maybe, and then changed your mind the second you saw a scary ad. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, I think if, if people can find the bravery and the safety and the, um, community support to fall back on mm-hmm. to share their stories now if it's not uh, personally dangerous for them i think that's the biggest advice i have nice. whether it's allies uh talking about their trans kids yeah. or even talking about how they had a gay friend and they somehow changed like journey stories mm-hmm. um when an ally shares a journey it's much easier to see yourself in that than to see yourself mm-hmm. in a gay person who you don't think you have anything in common with absolutely so i think there's a space for all of us to share yeah. um and to kind of understand who is the best messenger for the for the certain time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I think you make a good point about the role that allies can play right mm-hmm. now. Like, you know, there are so many trans folks who are just like trying to live life and survive and like work their job or whatever it is. And allies have a little bit more space. And I heard um, Amber Hikes, who's the director of the office of inclusion, I think it's called for Philadelphia. And mm-hmm. she talks about, you know, she's a, she's a black queer woman. And she was like, there are days that I have no space left for racism. Mm. She's like, but I always got time for transphobia. Mm. So she's like, yeah. I will, I will get on Twitter and I will fight a battle around transphobia because it's not my fight and I have, mm-hmm. fight, I have space for it. Yeah. And that, that idea about how even in marginalized communities, we can hold space for other people whose experiences we don't have. Like right. it, you know, I don't have, I don't have skin in the game around some things that 
other folks have skin in the game around. And so I can jump in and mm-hmm. as a as an ally, as someone who gets I'm super passable as male. So in that space, I can stand for women and say, mm-hmm. no, we should absolutely believe women's stories. Mm-hmm. And my voice gets heard in a different way. So like, you know, as allies, allies have a ton of space right now to oh. tell stories and to stand up and to fight fights that maybe, and I say fight fights, I mean like <laughs> in, in towards the battle for equality, not like actual fighting with people. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do not recommend anyone has any physical fights. Um, <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> just, you know, let's just be really clear about our intentions. <laughs> But I just think uh, I think al- that's a space that allies can play, especially in the lead up to an election that's so powerful. You make a great point. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a different well. Yeah. So when your well is dry, you've got this other one. Mm-hmm. That you still have to be doing something. I think we all need to just be doing something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like there's this there's this image floating around where it's like a it's it's a few different versions I've seen, but it's usually like a non-binary identifying person, mm-hmm. um, and the text near it says like, "Are you a boy or a girl?" And the answer is, I'm tired. <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> it resonates so deeply. It's like, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny because it's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, in this, like having to constantly fight for your identity thing, like, yeah. I, and I, you know, we, we haven't really discussed much of that in your story. This, this reality that as a person who identifies as non-binary, there's a, just kind of a constant negotiation for, because yeah. folks will not default to they them pronouns Mm -hmm. yeah and i think it's interesting for people who like i have a i have an extra maybe empathy for people who um come out as non-binary and don't really do a lot to change their physical appearance from what they were assigned at birth sure um and from what people assume that to be because Mm -hmm. i had already by the time i came out as non-binary i'd taken testosterone a lot Mm -hmm. of people knew me as like girl ashton and then guy ashton Mm -hmm. and so it was like by the time I got everybody in my life on board from switching from she, her to he, him, uh-huh. I'd figured out who in my life like really saw me and who was respectful of me. Uh-huh. Um, and then at the same time, like after fighting for that and kind of getting everybody on board and finally not having to correct pronouns, uh-huh. um, I think the experience of coming out as non-binary right now in 2018 is the experience of like accepting you're going to get misgendered every single day uh-huh. by people who love you because grammatically... Um, we hear that argument all day. It mm-hmm. just feels harder. And so people don't uh, maybe do as much work, honestly, to rewire the, those uh, neural pathways yeah. that say yeah. that they, them is not a person. And so what they're doing is they're seeing you and seeing, in my case, they're still seeing a trans man. Right. Um, and while it's great that they got to he him, it still feels like there's, there's this other layer of doing all that work and coming mm-hmm. out. And still feeling like not fully seen. And so for a long time, I think this is fascinating because I know people who are going through this too. Um, I gave people the option of using he, him, or they, them because of my own internal like phobia and shame around making people do something I knew that was uncomfortable for them. Sure. Um, And all the years I'd spent accommodating. And I really wasn't okay with it. Uh And I started to realize when I gave everybody the choice, they used he and him. Uh And for a while I was like, all right, I guess like they're working on it and it just never, ever, ever changed. Yeah. So I just said, nope, it's all they and them, and we're going to work on it together. Um, and I think there's this experience of misgendering yourself when you change pronouns that uh, also invalidates oh to people who hear you do that. Yes. Uh-huh. And they say, oh, well, you can't even get it. Um, so it's this whole kind of learning curve. But yeah. I think in a few years, we're going to get a generation of little kids who grew up kind of knowing that what you see is not what you get and that someone's appearance and 
how it sort of fits into one expectation of a girl or boy box right. is not at all the pronouns that you can assume. Right. And at that point, we will have evolved uh, far past these neural pathway problems yeah. where yeah. I think a, a lot of people are going to have an easier time with it. Yeah. Um, so I, it's maybe like a little act of protest. I don't. <laughs> I didn't care as much as I do when I gave people the choice and started realizing everyone was opting out. Yeah. Um, so I just decided to make people opt in. So nice. it's yeah. it's been kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. And I think it makes you more visibly non-binary. I'm not someone who yeah. can appear androgynous anymore because I've taken testosterone and do things that I kind of now pass and find ways to mm-hmm. express my queerness more. So, um, yeah, I think there's it's safe enough for me and I'm privileged enough that I like to find little ways to be visible. Yeah. Um, just because I know that I was looking for people who were visible when I was a kid. Yeah. And I hope to do that in small ways for people now. Yeah. That's awesome. I was in a meeting the other day where um, they were writing a policy for... I can see in your eyes. Oh, like, man. <laughs> for, for trans and gender nonconforming kids. Okay. And they kept using he or she uh-huh. in the whole policy Come everywhere. On. It's like, man. so the if your this child, he or down, she... It's so easy. And I was like, how about we drop all of these and go with they? And someone they looked at me and they said... Oh, so and so is going to have such a problem with this. Her mother was an English teacher. I was like, and I looked right back at her, and he goes, "I got all the time in the world for non-binary phobia because yeah. you know what? I am not. I am not non-binary. I will fight this fight." So I looked at him and I said, "If her mother is an English teacher, she should know that the the singular use of they has been in the English language for the past two hundred yep. years." Yeah, and just sort of let it drop there, and just looked at her, and she was like. And uh, dictionaries uh, and style uh, guides have decided uh, to reaffirm that, right? Yes. It's amazing. If you can get oh, Merriam-Webster to freaking tweet about the pl- singular know. use of they. For real. Come on. Was that right. the word of the day at, at one point? I think yeah. so. Back? Yeah. yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. That's it's crazy. Just, the woke it's dictionary. just an excuse because people are tired. Yeah. And that's okay. Like, as long as you don't use it as a crutch. It's okay to be tired. It's okay to feel like you're behind. Right. It's okay mm-hmm. to feel like you're afraid of being judged. Sure. For not being with it. Because... Right. These cha- these terms change that right. the yeah. three of us. Yeah. I mean, we learn new things and we go, okay, we're going to adapt. Absolutely. But we understand that that's a part of uh, being an ally. Yeah. Is continuing to figure out what the language is that the community is using to describe itself. Yep. Um, for instance, I spelled non-binary with a hyphen mm-hmm. for the first little while, mm-hmm. um, and I'm seeing more and more now that it doesn't have a hyphen. Mm-hmm. And I was building this. Um, I'm building this healthcare directory for mm-hmm. trans mm-hmm. folks. And one of the kind of categories I used in our community feedback surveys had a, a hyphen, and a couple of people pointed out, you shouldn't spell it that way. That's the wrong spelling. Hmm. I was like, all right, cool. And since then, you change your spelling. Like, if people are really, if they care more than I do about it, right. uh, and it's it feels like a thing that might estrange them, yeah. or feel too academic, or something like that, like, I'm out. Yeah. I covered up a tattoo that had an asterisk, because I found out that it was this sort of white, academic way of showing the trans umbrella. Hmm. And when... Like, I had organizers who were people of color, who were trans, mm-hmm. who were non-binary say, this whole asterisk thing is, like, really steeped in ivory tower white privilege. I was like, all right, booked a po- an appointment, <laughs> covered up the damn tattoo. <laughs> like, it's, there's just no room for us, like, yeah. uh, arguing with each other about that stuff. Absolutely. So. Well, there's no excuse to not grow, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if we, if we can't grow to 
be more respectful to other people's authentic lived experience, how can we expect people to grow to be mm-hmm. respectful of mm-hmm. ours, right? Whether you're cisgender, transgender, whatever your journey is, everyone's asking for someone mm-hmm. um, to care a little bit about their journey. So we to can feel heard, right? Yeah, to feel heard, you know, to feel respected. We can all lend each other that grace, right? To mm-hmm. do the work of learning pronouns, names, real simple stuff, <laughs> you know, that's that's not hard you would work. think so, yeah. You, yeah. It's, it's the hope, right? <laughs> and I think that's where a lot of my, like, patience comes as a trainer. Yeah. Is knowing that I had to learn about all this stuff. Totally. I didn't grow up in, like, this queer neighborhood, have a bunch of gay friends around as a kid. Like, I just, I had to learn it. Yeah. And it took me years to learn it. It took me years to learn it without some sort of implicit discomfort coming up. And yeah. so when I'm in front of a room full of people where it's new for them, right. we go slow. Yeah. And I say, you ask all the questions you need to. I have the energy today to respond to them. I've heard them before. Uh-huh. I've depersonalized it a little bit enough that um, they're not asking questions about my body. They're not asking right. questions about um, things that are too personal. Right. They're asking questions more about the experience of a community. Yeah. And I can respond back saying, here's my experience. Here's what I know of some other folks. Uh-huh. Um, here's where you can read more. Because yeah. I know that mm-hmm. Google has a different version of what comes up when you type transgender if you're a conservative person and if you're a progressive person. True. And I would love not to just send people to Google. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think there's when you have the energy for it, it's really it's nice to remember what you've learned yeah. and apply that back to other people's learning experience. Please tell me a story. What do you uh, What do you hope for your future? Um, and how you, how do you see yourself continuing to grow into who you are? Yeah, I think, um, something I really hope for is that I can move into more of a space of, um, like intersectional and racial justice organizing, Mm -hmm. because I think I, I see a lot of problems in progressive spaces where people have, uh, like the LGBTQ terminology and the latest, um, sort of like trendiest topics are totally there mm-hmm. and they're super like BDSM, poly, kink friendly. They're super non-binary friendly, super gender fluid friendly and all these things that are really like seemingly new concepts in the LGBT spaces. Mm-hmm. And then you'd expect that people who have all these conversations and are really with it mm-hmm. um, understand anything about other groups and it just, I keep getting sorely disappointed. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't say that's the case everywhere, but I think it's the case where if you've found a place that's like explicitly progressive mm-hmm. um, yeah. and is explicitly white, it can be really, really hard to kind yeah. of see the blind spots. Yeah. And so I have friends who are um, trans black organizers in Portland, for example, mm-hmm. um, folks who are people of color working in like San Francisco area, mm-hmm. um, LA area even, where like the racial tensions among our own community, among LGBT people are so frustrating because I think still we have all this like un maybe not unchecked, maybe just unseen or unnoticed privilege yeah. um, from a lot of like white, cis, gay, wealthy mm-hmm. um, movement organizers who mm-hmm. sort of still decide how things go and, yep. and what the trajectory of the movement is. And I think it's time for us to um, kind of bring ourselves to task with that and see yeah. who we're not listening to, who kind of really is the future yeah. Um, and you can't ignore it here, luckily, because Arizona is going to be a, a state where white people are the minority a lot faster than many other parts of the country. Um, so I'm excited about that. And I think uh, it's a conversation we're going to have to have. And I'm really, really excited to have it. Yeah. But it's going to be um, maybe a little ugly before <laughs> before we are able yeah. to look at ourselves honestly and say we have some work to do around uh, racial justice and white privilege. Yeah. I mean, I think it's already 
ugly. Like when we think yeah. of the past couple of years of Phoenix pride, right. Mm. Um, activists of color, you know, who are also queer trans and all the things, um, disrupting that to say, Hey, this isn't a space that's okay for us to be in because there are police here, you know, mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. wearing their guns, right. That are yeah. wearing their badges and their guns. Um, you know, there are corporations here that are exploiting us and that being met with calling the police on them, right. Using the police as a weapon against them. Um, and just, you know, in our organizations, we have mm-hmm. not a ton of organizations here that are LGBTQ centered and focused, um, but the ones that do are majority led by white people, mm-hmm. um, by cisgender people. Um, you know, I'm the first person of color and trans person who's an executive director of a statewide organization. I want to blow the mic, but I'm snapping for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and that's, that's a big deal, right? Like that um, is a huge shift that will hopefully be a part of this right mm-hmm. larger trajectory that we're talking about. Um, but I think because we live in a state where that shift is more eminent than others, the fight, like you were talking about earlier, right? When you feel that privilege slipping away mm-hmm. and kind of holding on to it even more, I think it's going to be a rough couple of years. It's going to be a lot of, a lot of tension in our community, a lot of difficult yeah. conversations. Um, but I think, you know, folks like us, uh, have had the benefit of going through a lot of our own processing mm-hmm. <laughs> and like to figure out who we are and what we want to be in the world. So hopefully we can extend that patience and grace to the rest of our community to get to this more racially racial justice and equity focused place. Yeah. I think um, there's a lot to say about how often we kind of it's horizontal violence is the way that I've heard it described, but oh, absolutely. How often we create barriers for each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, there just hasn't been enough listening. Absolutely, yeah. To different interest groups who really have the same goals and right. abstractly the same, uh, I guess the same processes and the same power dynamics are happening, but on different yeah. vectors of identity. Yeah. So it's really important just to listen. Definitely. Um, and I think we're getting there to the point where even if people are shouting it through a megaphone, you're you're heard. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. Which is I think better mm-hmm. than where you are before. Yeah. Um. So it's it's an exciting time, but I think you're right. There's going to be. Some growing pains. Definitely. I think, you know, the movement, when we think of it, I mean, you know, the whole love is love thing, right? Like the whole, (laughs) the the branded LGBTQ movement. When people think of that, they think of white queer Mm -hmm. people, right? Mm -hmm. Largely white gay and lesbian people. It has Um, like a little bit of a a taste of all lives matter. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Um, And it it was very much, it's a brand that's very much created to be acceptable to white people of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's the major obstacle, right? Is sort of debranding ourselves <laughs> like mm-hmm. sort of decolonizing mm-hmm. ourselves from this branding um as individuals and as a community to say this is a little more complex than that we span all the types of people yeah. this community yeah. is every type of person that could be um and that means we've got a lot to grapple with you know mm-hmm. but it's a big challenge i will add a little shameless plug for what's Please going do. on right now um i part of kind of using the the privileged spaces that I've been in and all the training I've gotten through this awesome job that I've had for the last few years and um, the sort of movement organizing mentoring that I've had is knowing that I, I always let other people say no and I've kind of decided to um, take away the socialization I had as a little girl saying like this isn't my place mm. and when there are things that are specifically for um, whether it's like a funding opportunity or a training opportunity that are specifically targeted for people who might not have um, another opportunity to get in the door. Yeah. I, I kind of am always grappling between: do I step back because I have more privilege than someone else who might get a seat, or do I just try to go for it mm-hmm. um, because I have the training and skill set to be able to 
get some good work done. Sure. And one one time that I decided to just apply was for the Obama Foundation Community Leadership Corps. Um, and I, I didn't get in last year, so I decided to apply again, thinking, I don't know, I'll just see. Yep. And I got in this year, which was interesting. Congratulations. Um, thank you. And this year, they expanded it from like a three-day organizing training to like a six-month mentorship program. Wow. And so basically, you propose, they chose like 35 young people, 18 to 25-year-olds, um, in three different cities, Chicago, um, Columbia, South Carolina, mm. and Phoenix. Wow, and they were cities that they identified as like having a lot of youth organizing power, but not a lot of places for them to get in the door and get internships or get like yeah. actual routes to power. Yeah. Um. So, I was one of the projects they picked, and from there you kind of have this like web of recruitment where you bring in other people to the project. So mm-hmm. we now have six people as of today who are working on this project with me, and it's really exciting. Um, we are building a like directory style website that is specifically uh kind of used as an update to what has been a paper directory for a very long time wow. listing trans competent providers for um, healthcare, behavioral and mental health in Arizona. So we've had this awesome, um, I would say like a PDF document of about 200 providers that's been passed around for decades now uh-huh. uh, from a group called Transpectrum of Arizona. Uh-huh. And they have been like the authoritative resource guide for medical care providers, for social support groups, for advocacy organizations. And they produce this list about every year. Uh And so the problem I was seeing was not that that we didn't have the resources, it's that we couldn't keep them up to date fast enough. And that if Uh you, between the date that they published a new one, called a doctor and found that the office had changed, or the number had changed, or really the one person who was fighting for change there left and went to a different agency, and suddenly they don't have a trans program. Uh It's like there's no way to really find that out. There's no way for community feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think somebody's up to date and you had a good experience, maybe that was your privilege speaking and someone else goes and has a bad experience. Yeah. There's no way for those two experiences to be um, told right. as, a, as a resource guide that kind of lives and breathes and is informed by the community. Mm-hmm. So looking at like the style of One Communities Directory, of Local First Arizona's Directory, of Yelp and other like um, even the housing kind of directories that you can use to yeah. um, find you know, walk scores and and your pet rent and all these really stupidly specific things. I'm like, why don't we have that for doctors? Yeah. Um, so essentially we're spending the money and we're doing everything we can to make sure that we get all the features right so it is what the community wants, not really cutting corners on that. Um, we spent three weeks gaining feedback. Um, we surveyed healthcare providers and patients. Awesome. And the thing that about 85% of the survey respondents said was they don't want to be someone's first trans patient. Yeah. So yeah. while that's hard, I'm starting to think of like future possibilities mm. where trans people get paid to be like uh, practice patients. Yeah, yeah. That could be really cool. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, we know that there are doctors right now who are doing the right things and already know the best practices for trans care. Yeah. And we just want to make sure that we celebrate them mm-hmm. um, and get them to a place where other doctors can learn from what they're doing right. Mm-hmm. And people don't have to have five bad experiences before they find one good doctor. Yeah. So that's kind of where we are now. Um, it's going to launch October 8th, and we're basically just building our first listings now. We have a couple of doctors already loaded in, which is really nice. exciting. Nice. Um, and we're getting the final features all set up. So it's going to be like a rolling process before all of the search filters are there and everything's all ready to go. Yeah. Um, but it's like Google and the apps enabled, and it's Facebook enabled, and all these things are ready now. So nice. we're going to kind of do a soft launch, and from there, keep building rad. until... Hopefully we get some folks in other cities to be hubs there and we can build up the network. Love it. And what's what will it be called? Um, it's called Qtopia. Nice. Like Utopia. Nice. Um, 
I, I have to think about utopias to like get up in the morning. So like, I think it's kind of fun. <laughs> oh, um, one of my teammates made up that name and it's Very spelled cool. Q-U-T-O-P-I-A. Awesome. And the URL is just qtopia.us. So cool. Yeah. So congratulations. Awesome. That yeah. That's fantastic. Excited. Such a needed resource. Yeah. Yeah. And we were, we were actually just talking uh, in our, we just recorded an episode where the ally moment was about um, this idea of paying trans folks as consultants yep. mm. to do policy work. So I love this idea about like having a cohort of people who are okay with being the first trans patient because they're getting mm-hmm. paid for it. Like that's yeah. really rad. Well, and even, yeah. I don't remember what it's called now, but there is a job that a lot of college students do where you yeah. just go in and you're a model patient. Yep. Like, yeah. Maybe that is what it's called. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> people who are studying how to be doctors before yes. they see a patient can pretend to treat you. Yeah. Well, so maybe it's reading labs for, you know, checking hormone levels. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's um, doing routine, uh, like, reproductive health care for people who might not have, like, the typical cis expected body. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's just so important because we know that med students aren't learning this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, we've got a medical school that in downtown Phoenix right mm-hmm. here, you know, so it's it'd be a pretty easy thing to do. Well, they're leading the way. Yeah, they it's are. Really they're exciting. doing great stuff, yeah. but they're very open to this kind of mm-hmm. uh, adding trans experience to that training for doctors. Mm-hmm. And so is U of A, right? Mm-hmm. So we've yes, got multiple, exactly. and we have other medical schools here that hopefully would be open to that, because that's, yeah. that's a critical thing that if you can get medical students thinking about transgender patient care. So important. Uh, that's... A whole different ball game, you know, for us, mm-hmm. for our future. For right, yeah, you know, the, the training is half the battle. It really mm-hmm. is, yeah. It makes an enormous difference. So mm-hmm. that's really great sure. work. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. We're excited. It's it's yeah. awesome. I'm learning a lot about healthcare. Yeah, I don't know anything. I'm just surrounding myself with people who Love work it. in that sphere because I think um, knowing knowing the problem and realizing you have the energy to do something means yeah. you just get to learn a lot. Exactly, exactly. So. Let us know when it launches so we can push it out. Yeah, and October eighth. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Awesome. Yes. That's very fantastic. Cool. Yeah, thanks. That's great. All right. Well, thank you so much for thank coming you. and sharing your story. And you two are right. You're really great. I <laughs> feel like I feel like we could have talked for a very like a much longer time. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. like I don't know if anybody is going to still be listening at this point. <laughs> they will. They will. Thank you. If you did. They're just going to look up the storytelling thing I talked about and just quit. Like, it's a lot shorter. <laughs> well, they will have missed some really great stuff from you if they do that. So hopefully. I just can't wait to pet your dog. He's adorable. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. <laughs> He's here for that too. So, you know, that's good. We include an ally moment in every episode because we know that there are lots of you listening who aren't trans, uh, but you're listening because there's probably someone in your life that you really care about that is trans or you want to be a good ally to the trans community. So these moments for, are for you and they're all about how uh, you can best support the trans friends and loved ones in your life. Okay, go ahead. Um, people use grammar as a barrier, as an excuse um, to using they, them pronouns. Like it feels yeah. uncomfortable. Um, but it's really easy, especially for anybody who has tried to learn a foreign language, for example, to just mm. learn the conjugation of a word. Um, <laughs> for instance, I find myself so surprised how many times I have to s- explain to people that transgender is really only acceptably used as an adjective, mm-hmm. not as a noun or a yeah. verb. Yeah, um, and people still say things like "this person transgenders," or <laughs> yes. or "this transgender did that, 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 and that." Yeah, um, and I think like it's so simple just to help people reframe how they can use a word uh-huh. that doesn't make it feel disrespectful because it's those sort of like really, really well-meaning but ignorant uses of words that can be super triggering for people. Yeah. Like it just feels like another person who doesn't understand. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, where if you take like five minutes, I found it on Google. It's this little 
and there's a bunch of them, a little conjugation chart, like you'd have for a nice. verb if you're learning Spanish. Very and nice. It tells you all the different ways with example sentences of how you would use they, them. And so thinking about like how would you say themselves or themselves? Well, it's really only one person. So most people who use they pronouns would say themselves. Yeah. Um, and so, and thinking about like they, them, there, and why that relates to he, him, his, and those kinds mm-hmm. of things. And so um, just learning how to conjugate doesn't take a lot of time it takes a lot more time for a non-binary person to explain it than it does for an ally to look it up and practice and i think something that my friend um there's a person who we were very sad to lose in the phoenix community to seattle uh vern harner and they're like the coolest uh, vern has been on this podcast yes they're super cool they're just yeah. the coolest trainer because they make the, all these funny creative ways to teach about this stuff oh. um and one thing that they always used to talk with me about is how it's really cool to think of people practicing they them pronouns with their pets like gender is this kind of human social construct my cat doesn't know that she was born with like female reproductive cat organs uh-huh. so if i can like be at home and practice and talk about my cat and narrate my cat's day not only is it hilarious and goofy and fun but like you can practice using they them pronouns with your animals that's yeah. awesome. so i think it's kind of a fun example but just doing those little things that will help uh the people in your life to feel like they don't have to work so hard yeah. around relationships that should kind of be their safe places um, yeah I had a, I saw on Twitter, someone posted about their roommate's dad came to visit and he was really cool and really trying to respect their, they, them pronouns and was, was worried that he was going to get it wrong. And so he envisioned that they had a mouse in their pocket. And oh, this so, is amazing. To refer to, 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 refer to both of them. <laughs> and so for him, it was a yes. shortcut in a way that he could like wire for his mind that didn't actually require anyone else to do anything. Wow. Um, so, and he apparently told them this much, much later <laughs> yeah, <good>. because <laughs> he, so he had like figured out some way to make it make sense for yeah. him until he got in the habit. Just and then, device. yeah. yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> so it's for him, it was really, it, it worked and it was rewiring and the roommate thought it was really, really cool. Um, and then like, but didn't tell the, like didn't tell their non-binary roommate. Cause they were like, yeah, I don't need you to know that my dad was picturing a mouse in your pocket. But then later it was like, Hey, um, cause the roommate was like, Oh my God, your dad is amazing. And non-binary pronouns. She's like, Oh yeah, it's you and the mouse in your pocket. <laughs> calls and checks on his daughter and is like, hey, how's your roommate in their mouse? <laughs> so good. Oh my gosh. That's super cool. But it's, I mean, I think it's a similar thing, right? Like it's a, you know, practicing on your cat, thinking yeah. about it as a mnemonic device. Like, like you just do a little extra work yeah. so the person who's always working doesn't have to do that work. Right. That's like what it means to me to be an ally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's taking on a little bit of responsibility, mm-hmm. right? And not expecting people who are experiencing that particular marginalization to do your emotional labor. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's being a decent person. It's time for closing credits. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Michael Soto. And me, Sam Garman. Thank you for listening. Uh, make sure that you hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Our music is by Skylar Kurgle. Check him out at skylarkurgle.com where you can see what he's up to and link to all his social. We want to hear from you. You can connect with us on transformpod.com or on Facebook at transformpod. We appreciate your questions and feedback. Email us at transformpod at gmail.com. We really encourage your thoughtful and positive feedback. 
If you disagree with us, that's fine, but we will not engage in any name-calling or dehumanizing talk, so please just don't do it. Thanks for going beyond the transition with us. Please tell me a story.